The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as I mentioned last week, I'm finishing up um, several months talking about the Buddha's path of awakening, as we often call it in the early Buddhist tradition. We have a life, we have a mind and body, and often we fall into patterns of suffering and being tight. And often when we're suffering and tight and stressed, we cause others around us and even the world generally to be tight and suffer. Right? And so in this way, we're all of us in some way or another, we're reverberating, feeding off of each other's suffering, setting in motion more suffering, and when we unpack how all of that, we see that the motive force of that suffering is greediness, stinginess, ill will, hatred, fear, and just plain delusion, not connected, not seeing clearly, not being intimate with the conditions of our lives internally, externally. And then we get the world like this. And just in simple terms, the Buddha's solution was, like if the problem that allows for so much suffering here and there, if the underlying problem is this disconnection, not seeing clearly, not understanding things as they are, then the resolution to that cause of suffering, ignorance, is non-ignorance, is being connected, feeling, seeing things as they actually are. And of course, it's not an intellectual understanding we're talking about. And that's why we can practice right here in any moment of our life. Any moment, like this one right now, any moment is a suitable moment to, in a sense, drop in. Oh yeah, there's a life here. And not to second guess what we begin to experience when we drop in. Oh, no, no, that's not, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, or this isn't what I'm supposed to be experiencing. See, that's the thing. We always want to take the position of the person in control who thinks they know and then seeks, you know, according to the plan we think we know. But a wise practitioner following these teachings from the Buddha Right? We, we take as our teacher nature or Dhamma, the way it is. And we bring Buddha, this capacity to be awake, to be present, and with practice to be more and more undefended. So when we connect, when we open, through less and less filters, so more simple, that's why we often use that term, like connecting, relating with a heart that is empty of greed, empty of ill will and fear, empty of delusion and disconnection. Which just means being simple. But in that simplicity, the mind is very alive and alert and interested because there is an intuition of how much freedom, how much learning 
is available right now. I don't need a special moment, even being at home in this sort of strange coronavirus time. Is There are just infinite numbers of appropriate moments to wake up. We don't need a different life. And so, you know, as a way of supporting ourselves as we move through the day, we can just, you know, it's nice to keep it in easy terms so we can remind ourselves. We become less and less dependent on outside teachers because we're learning how to remind ourselves. So a simple question like, how are you doing? Is this mind, is this heart distracted? Or is this mind and heart non-distracted? Which would mean connected or intimate, awake. And that's a question, you know, you do it in your own, you know, your own way, but that's a question we can ask any number of times. And it's not a control, like sometimes we ask questions and it looks on the surface like we're sort of expressing some non-controlling, authentic interest, but the questioning is really demanding or controlling in some way. So that question about how's the mind doing? Is it distracted, disconnected, or non-distracted? Actually opening and receiving and connecting with what's moving here, right here, and this body, right here, and this sensitive heart, and this thinking mind, imagining mind. What's happening? And that's it, because the uh, the freedom that we somehow intuit is possible. The release from being tight, and the release from being afraid, and the release from being anxious and needy. That resolution of the tightness, the release of tightness, it seems, you know, the more we live our life and practice, it seems that the proximate cause for moments of freedom, moments where we feel like we actually belong in this messy world, in our messy lives, with this personality that, I don't know about you, but my personality is imperfect. The, the moments we experience real freedom are those moments when we're, we realize, right, it's an awakening, we realize the possibility of really being there, seeing clearly, no coloring, no like pretending or imagining, just seeing the dynamic of this personality, this thinking mind, this feeling heart, this body, the world around, the world within, meeting this world and realizing or discovering the freedom the freedom of letting the world and this personality and this body and this mind be what it is. And that's the thing, if we really, it, it's kind of an outrageous thing for any of us, and especially people who have more challenges, challenges in their life. I consider myself a relatively privileged human being, certainly in the great scheme of things. I'm comfortable, I've had a lot of love and support in my life. I've had a lot of safety in my life, generally speaking. And so, speaking from my 
position, you know, it's uh, keeping in mind this possibility of coming alive in my life, not feeling burdened by my human existence. And I'd like to think this is true for all of us, even those of you who have more challenges, whatever they might be in your lives, that somehow we can learn to trust the difficult at times, beautiful at times conditions, circumstances, and with time and practice, learning to be to more confidently relax and open and be interested and realize the heart that doesn't need to be in conflict with the moment. You know, it always, initially, the practice, the spiritual, any spiritual practice, it's going to look like I'm doing it. And that's the same with Buddhist practice. So I mentioned, I believe, last week about, you know, the, the sort of motives in my heart, in our hearts. There are skillful motivations, skillful intentions, and unskillful. And the Buddha breaks this down, maps this out as three wholesome three unwholesome intentions. And so initially, you know, as I'm distilling what life has taught me and I'm hearing, you know, the Buddhist teachings, I then start to get a sense that, you know what, generosity seems to work better than stinginess, contentment better than non-contentment, discontentment. And uh, renunciation works better than holding on, right? So this is the teaching on generosity that we're distilling from our own experience. It's not coming from the top down, somebody up there saying, hey, you should be generous. We're just here in more and more moments being connected and we learn. Because if in any moment we're noticing stinginess and we're willing to be intimate with that, then wisdom says, this isn't helping. This is not the way to freedom. And then if in that moment that we're connected there's a generous heart or a content heart or a heart that's willing to let go, we sense, hey, this is in the direction of release and freedom. Same with kindness versus ill will and hatred and fear. And compassion and morality, this deep valuing of non-harming versus a more complacent or... Um, yeah, just not caring so much about the roots of suffering and the how we're complicit in other people's suffering. It may initially seem like a burden to be compassionate, but when we really look clearly, we see that when we're complacent and not caring about harm, about how harm, how others are being harmed, is actually a weight in our heart, and that taking of responsibility and feeling the desire for non-harming is uplifting, is energizing and liberating. But this we have to discover for ourselves. And so initially, we're this practitioner who's doing the discernment between what we're finding skillful in the direction of freedom and what we're finding unskillful in the direction of being tight and heavy 
and flat, in a sense, not alive, right? So initially we have to play that role of the practitioner who cares enough about my life to do this discernment, learn from what I'm experiencing in my own life, apply myself, aim the mind and heart in the direction of what I'm finding to be skillful, refraining skillfully from what I've found to be unskillful. But it doesn't end, it isn't like that's forever, because I bet most of us have mo experienced moments where we go from like being the practitioner who's trying to be skillful and avoid being unskillful, to moments at least where that skillfulness is arising naturally. And the practice is as simple as this radiant presence, being present, being connected, feeling everything. So when our life and the activity of my life, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, when it gets triggered or gets activated so that I'm moving in the direction of what we might call being unskillful, then that radiant presence, that balanced and clear and intimate, kind presence, it naturally senses, it's like a beautiful feedback mechanism. It senses, honey, this is not in the direction of freedom. And when this natural process I call me, Mark, when I'm living and acting and thinking in a way that's more skillful, in line with renunciation and kindness and non-harming, and I feel the lightness and the aliveness of that, then wisdom senses that. Oh yeah, this is the way. This is the way. Oh wonderful, this is the way. And so now I'm not so much the practitioner who's got to remember what's skillful and aim that way and remember what's unskillful and refrain from that. It's more, the practitioner's more and more with years of practice in moments, more and more taking refuge in that Buddha knowing Dhamma, that wakefulness, that being open and intimate with the conditions. And noticing how Sangha, how skillfulness comes out of that, how naturally we refrain when we're drawn into directions that are not so wholesome, and naturally sustain when the heart is engaged and acting in ways that are skillful. It's just so beautiful to see that our lives and our practice gravitate in the direction of what we might call effortlessness. Because otherwise we envision, you know, we're naturally going to envision the path as being a big burden, like being good, being skillful, being compassionate. Yeah, that's right, but what a burden is that? And boy, you know, as much as I know being bad is bad, it seems really enticing to be bad and just do what I want and get what I want to get and be free of having to be good. So we really need to begin to intuit and directly immediately sense the freedom of that effortlessness of being good. We have to see that the work of being good is a temporary stance or a temporary activity to prevent getting burnt by life, acting in ways, thinking in ways that cause this heart to get tight and cause 
suffering around us. So we're willing as a human being, as a person, to sort of do the work of not creating more suffering for myself and others because I've been burnt enough and I don't want to be burnt again. But that's not the end because there will always be the shadow if, as when we're in that place of like wanting to be bad, wanting to, be, wanting to put down the burden of having to be good. And you see that, you know, kids are good and good, but they're kind of, you know, well, we're like that kid looking for the places to leak and to act out because our goodness is really a stance that we're taking. It's only useful temporarily so that we're not being entangled in unskillful actions. There's more stability, even though we're trying to be good and trying to maintain being good. There's some stress in it, but it's relatively stable, certainly more stable than letting our habit energies take us into unskillful actions and unskillful thinking. And with that stability, we can explore this effortlessness, being good, being kind, being generous, letting go, really being engaged in ways that don't cause others harm. But not as a burden, but as a natural, effortless expression of this life infused with presence, with awareness, mindful awareness. And that's real freedom. When we see ourselves in like in a, you know, a messy situation where we're interacting with other people and it's around power, issues of power and what we're going to do and all those sort of things that are difficult in life. But we see ourselves engaged, not holding back, playing out our role that has come with, you know, the sort of society and how we're located in that community at that time, willing to own our responsibility and play out our role appropriately with all the wisdom and understanding and with humility, totally engaged, not holding back. But none of that appears in our heart as a burden or as a fixed stance. I have to be good. I have to do it right. So, in that nimble, effortless activity, there's no fear of making a mistake and no demand or dependence on being skillful because it's just presence and habit energy. And the habit, habit energy is constantly being purified by the presence that understands what's in the direction of tension and suffering for myself and others and what's in the direction of freedom. Now I want to go back because it's so pragmatic, this article, um, I'm hopefully some of you have had a chance to read it. I mentioned it last week, Schooling Our Intentions by Joanna Macy. I know that Gabe Keller Flores put it in the weekly email last week and I'm, I've asked him to put it again in the weekly email this week so that you can uh, link to it. It was recently, and not recently, a long time ago, in 1993, in Tricycle, um, the winter of 1993. For those of you who have a subscription, you can just track it down. Schooling Our Intention by Joanna Macy. And she starts by asking the question, and she's a longtime um, activist, especially an environmentalist. How can we engage in action on behalf of the earth and not get consumed not go crazy. 
that we can broaden that because it's not just being moved to act to take care of the earth, our home, but it's engaged to address all kinds of injustice and just engaged to address our own needs to pay the bills, pay off loans, take care of our family or friends. And then she names six things that make this engagement difficult. The first she mentions is the complexity and range of the crisis, right? It's not just one thing. There's many things that naturally we see as threatening us. All we have to do is wake up a little bit and we see it's not just the global climate crisis or economic injustices or political crises or the pandemic. There are many, many, and the more we're willing to be sensitive in the world, way too many. So part of what makes it hard for us to practice showing up is it's the, the exposure seems enormous. And the second point she makes is that there's ever, there's always ever more data, right? It's like we never get to the point, like with whatever problem we're going to decide to address, we never get to that place where we know everything there is to know about whatever we're going to do. Even something as simple as I'm going to wash the dishes in my sink, right? But like, how, you know, should I get a bowl and fill that with hot water? How should I do it? How much soap should I use? What should I wash first? How should I stack? the dishes and the drain, right? So we can, we can always get pulled away from engagement because it seems, it can seem to make sense to think, I want to think about this a little bit more. So the complexity and the amount of data. The third thing she mentions is that in a lot of these places, we, we maybe rightly recognize that success, the chances of success are relatively slim. So how to show up when the odds maybe aren't in our favor that we're going to be able to do something good. And then she makes a couple points, the fourth and fifth points are really like in our culture, it has become taboo, inappropriate to name these systemic problems like racism. I mean, one of the things I've noticed as I've tried to become a better student of um, what it means to be white, and I noticed like in the early years of um, studying, like how my mind, heart felt that word or that phrase, uh, white supremacy, you know, culture, I live, I was raised in a culture of white supremacy. And of course, then that gets taken in. And I noticed like that was so uncomfortable, like, you know, and then like when I think about most social circles, you know, if uh, especially white social circles, if you bring up that phrase, white supremacy, it's like a conversation stopper. You just don't bring that up. Or if, you know, if you bring up even things around climate change or any number of things, it's just like people are really attached to not paying attention to certain things, not seeing certain things. And it's this sort of conspiracy of silence that 
exists probably in most communities, always a little different in this community versus that, but we all, all our communities we're part of have their own variation of these, this conspiracy of silence. Don't rock the boat. And then the next point that Joanna makes in this article that when we do rock the boat, we should expect, expect pushback. Because that's what happens when we name things as we see them, when we're willing, no longer willing to be quiet, and we, we feel our responsibility to name what we're seeing and what we're sensing, because we care, and we care about our own suffering and others, we should expect pushback. I remember um, Lily Tomlin, I think it was, it might have been her famous one-woman uh, show she had, but I forget where it was, but she said something like, if you're going to tell the truth, you better make it funny or they'll kill you. <laughs> and that's funny, and it's also, unfortunately, true in some ways. And then the last point that she makes about how why it's so difficult to practice showing up in our lives, even, you know, what we do with meditation is we find optimal conditions where people are going to leave us alone mostly, the dog or the cat's in the other room, we got a comfortable place to sit, we've taken care of shutting off the cell phone and this and that. And even then, it's not so easy to show up to our life. So how much more so when we're going to our family of origins and dealing with all the unfinished business in our relationships there, or we're trying to earn a living, or we're dealing with some of the injustice in our society, in the world, and how power oppresses others. And luckily in this article, and I read a little bit, I believe, last week, um, about how there's a way forward. And so it's the way to think about engagement and uh, showing up to our life, not holding back. I think it may be more useful. Like a lot of us initially thought, oh, I need to show up. I need to engage in order to fix the world. And uh, it definitely seems appropriate to be moved by the suffering and to feel moved to do something to help. But I think what really makes that movement more authentic is when we realize that my engagement, and again, this could be as simple as my engagement in the mess, my engagement with the mess in the bathroom, as it would be my engagement with the wider world and racism and economic injustice and climate crisis. So whether we're talking very local, like I'm going to engage my garden, I'm going to engage the dishes in the sink, I'm going to really show up with my partner and my relationship to my partner and really illuminate what the way it is and what's helping and what's helpful and what's not helpful and what's out of balance. And I'm going to fearlessly speak up truth to power when that's appropriate. And when I'm in that power position, I'm going to really create space to listen, even if it's really painful. So that to always connect that that good work we're doing, not just to take care of other people or because we should, but because our own well-being, our own healing and freedom depends 
on that showing up, not holding back, that engagement. We really need to see the world is not here to save us or to be like a Garden of Eden where everything is just right and we find, you know, we're taken care of by Mother Nature. The world is really here for this awakening process. We have to give ourselves to our life as imperfect as each of our lives, each of our set of circumstances are. It's really important that we find ways when, when we connect, when we show up with that awareness, that we see that it's not just good for those around us, but my own freedom, my own deepest healing, it depends on that showing up. And that any little or big way that I turn away, that I close down, I mean, we, we will turn away and we will close down, but it can't be the long-term strategy. Right? It's just like when we go to sleep at night, we're closing down. We put the blankets around us, everything's shut off, hopefully you're in a safe space. And we, in a sense, turn away from all of our duties and responsibilities. We turn away from the world and we rest. Same when we do our formal meditation and we sit down in a quiet space. But all of that healing work is so we can more and more enter all those places that are asking for our, our engagement. And we can enter and find the healing that our heart's looking for and also contribute to the wider healing. And that's the real key that I wanted to make, a uh, key point that I wanted to make today about linking the deepest spiritual healing and awakening with this engagement in the world. Now it always is going to look different. You know, a lot of people, you know, might look at the sort of traditional Buddhist path, you know, where you're spending a lot of time meditating. But just as an example, the Buddha, so somebody, a person who lived 25 or so, 100 years ago, spent a lot of time just sort of wandering around, living outside of villages, not staying put, but willing to teach those who are around him. So in terms of what that person was able to contribute and all the reverberations of those teachings and how much it's contributed to the well-being, happiness of human beings, right? That's quite a contribution. So how we engage we don't want to judge others how they're engaging or think we know. We just have to find our own way. How is the world asking for my engagement? How's the world of my life asking me to show up right now? It's not really a theoretical or philosophical or even political question. It's just about being connected to this body, this heart, and what's around us, the community we're in, the communities we're in. And then letting that movement into engagement come out of being connected. So before I end, I just want to share, um, Joanna has some advice for us, right? She has, I forget how many steps, maybe four, but let me just read them. The first one, I think she'd consider the most important because it's really about wisdom. 
And it really um, has to do with understanding power. So in terms of engaging the messiness, complexity of our lives and the dismal chances, you know, in terms of really turning things around in so many different ways. And that just shouldn't surprise us because even the basic nature of our life is we're born and then we die. Everything we have, we're going to lose. So our engagement has to be about something other than winning in the end and having this sort of everlasting life where we get to have everything we want. Because that doesn't seem to be in the cards. So the first thing she mentions in terms of how we can really show up in a wise way to our lives, she says, this true nature of ours tells us that our power is, tells us what our power is. Understanding power is absolutely critical because you can have all the smarts and devotion and information to carry forth a, a campaign of action, but if you are still falling for the old notion of power, you are crippling yourself. And she talks about that as, you know, the traditional idea of power is to have dominion or power over others. Even like within my own heart and mind, like power over my body. I'll make my body the way I want my body to be. I'll make my mind behave the way I want my mind to behave. I want my emotions to be this way and I'll make them that way. So that's the very common and traditional understanding of power. And so she invites us to change that concept of power and she uses, I, I might have mentioned this last week, the neuron cell and the kind of power of that brain cell is because of its capacity to be connected with so many other neuron cells, so many other brain cells. And so it's power with. And in Buddhist terms, we might think about it as we can develop this power of being intimate, right? The, the Intimate with the enormity, both subtle and depth and breadth of the present moment. We can really be here in being connected, feeling and seeing, then we can participate in this moment with real power. The power comes not from that being having power over, the power comes from really sensing and understanding what's moving here. So in Buddhist terms we talk about that as conditionality. We're understanding the interdependent nature of this present moment. Like we're all in this together. That's not a philosophy or wishful thinking. That, that can be experiential. So then how we engage. The example that we often know about is like some of the more subtle and beautiful martial arts where you're just not using brute power to you know, have power over your opponent. There's a, a deeper, broader, more integrated sense of what's happening. So you take care, you protect yourself, not with brute power, but, but in knowing how that person is moving and where the strengths and weaknesses are and what's available. How to avoid being hurt. How to avoid being in the way of forces coming at us.
So that was her first point. The second was really about um, kind of uncovering some archetypes of non-fear. And she mentions the this Buddha, uh, Buddhist mudra, this hand gesture. You might see some statues where the hand is raised. And it just is, uh, honey, you don't need to be afraid. It's really okay. Even if what you're seeing is what you're seeing, you don't need to be afraid. And the other gesture she mentions, I can't really show it, but I'll raise my hand, is the Buddha touching the earth. And these are deep, I mean, they're part of a story pointing to a deep archetype that we somehow, I think, intuit, despite everything, it's okay not to be afraid. And the other is, there's something that we can touch, in this case, like as the story goes, the Buddha touches the earth at a real moment of crisis, a real moment of doubt, touch the earth, earth and the earth rumbled and, and vouched for the Buddha. And it's sort of the, the reality, the truth of conditionality, like things can't be other than the way they are. So when we're showing up and doing what we can do, knowing that we don't know, right, with that humility, we don't know everything. We know that we don't know everything. But we have a right to show up and engage and we have a right to listen and feel and for our engagement to, to come out of what we're aware of. That's what we have a right to. And, and that right is sort of a birthright. Like no one can take that right of engagement, of participating in our world and in our life. No one can take that away. So you can think of those two gestures. They're sort of powerful images. The gesture of non-fear and the gesture of touching the earth and really connecting like, I belong here, right now. This is not a mistake that I'm here, engaged, showing up, not holding back, with imperfect knowledge. Nobody made a mistake. This is how it's supposed to be in a way, right? And that's because wisdom is drawing on the truth of conditionality. That Things are breathtakingly the only way they can be. And the last thing that Joanna mentions in this article is we need to be ready for surprises. And I really like that. It's a really good way, good place to end this talk, this knowing that we don't know. And I really have appreciated this teaching about humility because it allows us to stay open and be awake, be a learner, as opposed to a fixed stance, which we know doesn't work. And that, there's some real ground. I mean, it's really the only ground we have. You know, I know with certainty that I don't know everything and that my real refuge is being open, being connected, not some pretend idea of certainty. As comforting as that can be in a moment, thinking that we know, realizing it's safer and it's lighter and freer to know that we don't know. It's so much more alive knowing that we don't know. So play with that today and tomorrow and in relationships and 
when you're faced with difficult, you know, choices or whatever, you know, see if you can really inhabit that space of knowing that you don't know. And in a way it frees you up to, well, this will be interesting. We'll see how this plays out. Choices will be made, right? And it will be interesting. And at least I'll learn. At least I'll learn. If I do this and it turns out to not be skillful, have bad uh, ramifications, well, I'll feel that, I'll see that, and I'll, I'll live and learn. So you might want to check out that article. There's more here than I was able to cover today. And once again, it's always so nice to connect in this way. And I wish you all safety and awakening and freedom so that we can really show up in all the little and big ways to our big, lovely and messy world that we live in. So may this be so. Take care. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.